Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast, where host and astronaut Charlie Camarda and his intriguing variety of guests share their visions for transforming the way we work, learn, and solve some of the most daunting challenges on Earth and throughout the solar system. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, my name is Charlie Kamada. I was an astronaut on Space Shuttle Discovery on the return to flight mission following the Columbia accident. I will be your host today for the Leading Edge Discovery podcast series, where we are going to talk with experts from around the world on the importance of science, technology, engineering, and especially research. Our first season of episodes will focus on NASA and the world of aerospace. In particular, we're going to zoom in on the Columbia accident, what caused the problem, and how did we get astronauts back up and flying safe. This is something that uh, is a topic which is uh, near and dear to my heart since I flew on that return to flight mission. And I really want this to serve as a tribute to to the real heroes that we're working to actually do the the very difficult analysis and testing, which led to us to be able to fly back in space safely. And my guest today is Dr. Edwin Fasanella, a good friend and colleague from NASA Langley Research Center. And Ed is a subject matter expert in the field of impact dynamics. Ed, welcome to the show today, and uh, it's good to have you here. And what I love to do in the beginning of this series is have you tell your story. What got Ed Fascinella interested in science and eventually lead to the, the, the unbelievable role you played in Return to Flight of Space Shuttle? Well, thank you, Charlie. It's a pleasure to uh, participate in your podcast. I guess I was uh, one of those nerds, you know, that just was crazy about science from a very early age. I got in the ham radio, I built my own equipment, I loved electronics. I, I joined the science book club when I was probably preteen and got all, read everything I could. I uh, subscribed to Scientific American and it, we just had a good time, you know, building things and so forth. Well, then I took off and uh, after, uh, after, uh, you know, uh, to college, I went to NC State University and I was going to I was going to major in electrical engineering, but I couldn't decide exactly what field and I put down engineering physics. Well, it so happened that the physics curriculum had broken off from engineering, so I ended up in physics, but that was still a good match for me because I really like all the sciences. So after I graduated from state, I went to Duke University on a fellowship and I got my Ph.D. Uh, there, uh, more or less on uh, radiation damage uh, to amino acids and so forth, which was quite a bit different than what I ended up doing late, years later. Uh, after that, I went to, t- after graduating with my PhD, I, I taught physics at Stetson University for four years. And uh, then unfortunately around the 70s, things went with the shuttle program, excuse me, with the space program coming to sort of a, a, a ending point. Uh, I actually saw the last uh, Apollo 5 go up at night. It was a beautiful thing. My kids enjoyed it too. But uh, uh, I ended up, <laughs> there was only 
there was no one going into physics or engineering. And so I ended up taking a job at Martin Marietta in Orlando, Florida. And then uh, things got bad. The, uh, the program on missiles, the, uh, the SALT Treaty came along and I ended up getting laid off there. Well, that's when I ended up coming up to Virginia and hired in at NASA, not actually at NASA at that time, it was a, a NASA support position. And I worked those for a number of years with various contractors, including Martin Marietta. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, I got into a, a branch called the Landing and Impact Dynamics Branch. They actually put us in the branch and we worked with the people in the branch. And I was really good at electronics, so I studied all the instrumentation on impact, became an expert in accelerometers and all their other types of instruments that are used to measure impacts. And we crash tested there at the Landing and Impact Dynamics facility, many aircraft over the years, probably 50 or more. And we learned a lot on how to collect the right data and how the dummies reacted on human tolerances, on structures. And I, hey, I hey, Ed, can I can I stop you there for a minute, Ed? Because I'm learning. I thought I knew you, Ed. I've known you ever since you've been working at, at Langley because I started working in 1974 also. I did not know that you started as a physicist. One of the other uh, fellows, a good friend of mine, Steve Scotty, that you know, also yeah. started as a physicist. So you come to Langley and you, you were there at a, a very great time. And I'm... I'm trying to figure out how did you end up getting into structural mechanics and the study of crash behavior and due to impact? And who were some of your mentors? How did this come about? <laughs> well, you know, it's a lot of serendipity in this stuff, uh, you know, Charlie. Uh, I, was, uh, I, was actually, <clears throat> I was actually looking for a job, and so I applied. Uh, and uh, there were several positions that came open. One of them was well, one of them was Impact Dynamics with Bob Thompson, who was the, the branch head then. And, you know, I, I love physics and I love Newtonian, Newtonian mechanics and that type of thing. I said, and there was another position that was open, but I like the Impact Dynamics one better. So I, I go in and, I, and I'm, I'm working with uh, Huey Carden and uh, Bob Thompson, uh, Al, Emilio Alfaro, uh, Bob Hadoo, who worked at Washington headquarters for a while and got really involved with uh, structural mechanics because I always have like, in addition to electronics, I always love mechanics, you know, um, and especially <coughs> impact dynamics, structural dynamics. This, this is amazing because the facility that Ed is describing when I first started working there looked like this gigantic erectoset gantry of a structure where they actually, the first seven astronauts were training at NASA in the early Apollo days. And, um, and they actually practiced landing on the moon and simulating zero uh, one sixth gravity landing on the lunar surface at your facility. That's exactly correct, Charlie. And I came to work there right after they closed that down, of course. And they and they, they had lots of pictures of the moon there, and they had the pictures of the simulated surface. And then there was the this conspiracy theories. Well, it was all filmed there. It wasn't really on the moon anyway. But yes, that was the uh, history of the of, of the gantry. And the uh, the gantry was a very interesting and unique facility for many years. And I worked there, and I, I was afraid it was going to be torn down before 
before I left, but it's still there. But I imagine it may not last too many more years. It is getting to be an old structure. And as a matter of fact, you used to swing these uh, general aviation airplanes, helicopter structures to study uh, impact dynamics. And one of the latest things you did there was actually the impact test of the Orion capsule in land and also in, in water out there. That's exactly right. When the when the Orion program started, uh, a, a large water basin was created so that we could swing in the capsules into the basin. And in addition to, you know, these tests, one of the, I was a, like an experimentalist and analyst. I, I knew both sides. A lot of people know one or the other, but I was, I was uh, lucky enough to, and interested enough in both that I could work both sides. So I started working uh, LS Dyna and a lot of these impact Finite element programs that really got very good because they had been they had been started out at Lawrence Livermore mainly for the nuclear industry and then car crashes. So these these finite element programs became very good. So we could actually predict what's going to happen when you impact in the water, on the land, or just um, to most any surface. We called it multi-surface impact analysis. So we could actually predict pretty much what was going to happen before the crash occurred with good results uh, in most cases. And so did you have to get additional training? For instance, you mentioned finite element analysis, which is a numerical technique. Now you're using this at, 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 at ballistic speeds and trying to understand the dynamics, the crash dynamics of what happens. Did you have to go for advanced training and advanced courses in finite elements? Well, Charlie, you may remember the course we took together back many years ago under Ahmed Noor. Uh, that was one of the theoretical courses I took. Obviously, I went to LS Dyna training and, and many, tra many training courses uh, on, on the, how to, the theory behind the methods that were used and a lot of, uh, a lot of the tests and a lot of sample cases and uh, learning LS Dyna in a complicated uh, dynamic finite element code that goes into plasticity and failure and that type of thing is very difficult because failure uh, you, if you delete parts out of your model, uh, it makes the model, if you're not careful, it makes the model unsteady and it can go crazy. But yes, you know, I have a lot of training and of course I enjoyed that. We'd go uh, to various locations out of Lawrence Livermore or we would have instructors come in and train our whole group. So it was, a yes, quite a bit of training was required on the, specifically on that code. Now I knew a lot of the basic physics and stuff like that, but there's a lot of higher mathematics and the final method is complicated. You, you know, I thought, I thought, you know, we had, we had taken several classes with Dr. Amin Noor, right, at George Washington, who was a, a leader in finite element analysis, which is a numerical technique. I remember going to a short course at MIT, and I can't remember the name of the dynamics professor that was showing impact results and it looked like they were tests from folks at Sandia, where they were looking at, at developing the bunker busters to get Saddam Hussein. And they were actually predicting how these shells were going to deform as they were going through the Earth's surface, which was amazing to me. Yes, MIT, I'm trying to think of that. I'm trying to think of the professor. I know who you're talking about. Unfortunately, sometimes I have a problem pulling names in. But yes, uh, it's amazing what what these uh, impact codes can do. And they've just gotten better and better. And now they design almost everything. It's even Coke bottles are designed for impact. And so they won't burst open. Uh, 
car crashes, uh, nuclear containment, uh, you name it. It's uh, bunker, bunker busters. Uh, it's just amazing what can be done. And and the, of course, the work on the on the shuttle leading edge was another leading edge sort of another leading uh, uh, pioneering effort, I guess you might say, uh, trying to model foam impacts onto a complicated uh, leading edge material. So we we had to learn a lot to do that, and we did learn a lot. And you have to do a lot of experiments too, in addition to just, you have to know the material properties of everything, uh, metals or foams or ceramics or composites or what, you have to know all the material properties and how it behaves dynamically too. And the mass yep. comes in quite important inertial effects. You know, you know, Ed, a lot of folks, a lot of our listeners don't understand how long it takes to actually mature and develop and mentor a, a, a person to actually uh, be an expert in, in these in in these fields, and 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 in your case, it was you were you were practicing approximately thirty years in this field, doing lots of tests, learning your learning your craft, and um and you worked on some amazing programs, and one of those programs, which I just realized as I was uh, researching you that I did not know you were part of was the controlled impact demonstration. And everyone watched this on TV. Could you could you explain that a little bit to us? <clears throat> well, yes, Charlie, I spent like five years working that program from the day one till the day it ended to writing a bunch of reports on it. It was a very interesting, it was probably the most interesting program I had worked on before the shuttle impacts. Well, could you uh, describe, describe what it was for the audience? Okay, well, uh, the FAA came up with the program and NASA joined because they needed some expertise. Uh, and they it was the, the program was you take a 707 aircraft and you load it up with dummies. The test was, the main test for the FAA, FAA was to prove that a so-called anti-misting kerosene would not blow up uh, and, and you know would not mist and then ignite with a fireball. And the FAA had done a lot of tests up in uh, New Jersey on this. And we would go to New Jersey quite a bit and talk with their research people and their engineers and so forth. And it was, the, the whole test was a little scary from the very beginning. Uh, the NASA side was very concerned about how it was gonna come off. Uh, the plane was guided by Fitzhugh Fulton, uh, Bob Fulton's brother who was out at, uh, Dryden, and he actually controlled the plane into the crash landing. Uh, now to make sure that- Now, for those for those who don't know this, Fitzhugh Fulton was also the pilot for the 747 carrier aircraft that basically carried the uh, shuttle orbiter on top of it if it landed at Edwards Air Force Base in California back to the Cape. That's exactly right. And I watched it fly over Langley a research center in Hampton a number of times. I said, I guess uh, just to show us that it was, a, <laughs> it was a good job. But anyway, we at Langley were very concerned because uh, we knew a lot could go wrong. And the setup for the controlling of the aircraft was not the world's best. And you, unfortunately at the time, the, the, the ground effects had to be taken into account and, and the pilot was, could lose control if he got real low. We practiced the landings quite a bit, or I should say they practiced them. I was not part of that. And, but they could only go so close to the ground. 
But uh, so anyway, to make sure the fuel tanks were burst open, they had these what were called tank traps or these gigantic steel uh, cutters essentially that would cut the wings open. Well, the aircraft came in and, 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 and uh, Hugh Fitzhugh did his best. However, it sort of crabbed in a little bit and it didn't hit exactly like they wanted it to. And instead of uh, just uh, cutting open the tank, it actually cut open one of the jet engines. And that ignition source was extremely hot and the whole experiment went up in smoke and flames. What can I say? But we had a good, lot of good data. We had actually, the people at NASA had, we had fireproofed all our equipment and we had our cameras and we got a lot of good films out of that from inside the uh, yeah. plane actually. You know, I remember watching that and I knew this was a great experiment for this anti-misting fuel. And we watched the wing dip down and, and hit that pylon that cut it open and it burst into flames. And I, I guess did anti-misting fuels, did they take off after that? Or did people believe, not believe that it could do what they were supposed to do? I think that was the death knell. You know, it was very hard to get this anti-misting fuel to burn properly. And they had to run it through degraders to degrade it before it got to the engine. So it, it didn't really, it really uh, died after that test, I'm afraid. Yeah, that's uh, that was a that was a terrible failure, I guess, for the folks that were promoting anti-misting fuels. But I re I remember that, and um, and so that that's amazing. So you guys, you were part of the team that was basically taking the data. You have all these uh, very expensive instrumented test dummies, crash test dummies, just like you do in an automobile crash, um, and 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 that was so cool, and um. And so now let's let's segue into the Columbia accident, right? Uh, we're, we're getting close now uh, for the 20th anniversary of Columbia. I know exactly where I was when that happened. I was training in Russia for a space station, a backup crew. Um, but what were your thoughts when you heard Columbia crash? And then as information started coming in and you started processing it, you realize that a piece of foam hit the vehicle. Walk us through that. What were your thoughts? Uh, okay, Charlie. Uh, you know, February 1st was my daughter's birthday. It was also a Saturday. So uh, uh, one of my colleagues up the street, Bob Doherty, who was in the landing group, they did a lot of tire work on the shuttle uh, with a large carriage. Well, Bob Doherty would listen in and go, you know, on the various... Um, messages and so forth with the, uh, the people in charge. And he would, uh, he put out some emails about what was going on that I started reading. I said, oh my God. So then of course I started looking at the TV and so forth. And also, I don't know why Bob already got in such big trouble. I, maybe I shouldn't say this with the uh, CAIB, but anyway, he did. But that's where it started. So after yeah, that- um, Wait, just to, just to walk the, uh, the audience back, I believe, during the Columbia accident, I believe people at people at uh, JSC did not contact anyone when the phone hit the vehicle. They didn't ask for help for anyone. But one lone email went out, and you, and now I remember the name. It was Bob Doherty because people at JSC, when they saw that phone hit, they thought maybe that might affect the landing gear. And Bob was the expert there. That's that's exactly right, Charlie. And 
and somehow or another, uh, I don't know why, like I said, Bob got a lot of negative press on that, and I, I didn't think it was warranted because he just put the word out. Anyway. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Let, let me ask you another thing, Ed. You know, this accident happened. Um, I know the folks at Glenn, we're going to interview the folks at Glenn also, but didn't the people in the program office, when they saw the foam hit the wing, didn't they know that we had experts at Langley, like your team at Langley, like Matt Mellis's team at Glenn, didn't they know that you existed? Well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know those people down there personally. I, I did know Bob Doherty and like I say, I kept up with things with him somewhat, but uh, I, we'd had done some work on the X-38 uh, and written some reports and so forth. So we had done impact work that was space related, but I didn't have a, I did not have a working relation with any of the people down at Houston, the, the you but, know, control people. But the X-38, that was John Murator and the folks at Johnson Space Center, right? Yes, uh, we... Yeah, we did so. We did a little bit of work on 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 that as far as uh, some landing simulations and so forth. That was just that was about the only kind of space work that I had done before the shuttle accident. But the shuttle accident, once I heard about it, I mean, I got very interested because I mean, this is something I knew that we could uh, we could help out. But we weren't encouraged to join in. But we started talking to Throckmorton. On conference. Wait, wait, wait. You weren't encouraged to join in. So upper management was basically not saying, hey, call no. up Johnson. No. and No. Well, unfortunately, I don't know. Upper management, I think, told lower management not to uh, not to join in unless you are specifically asked. And I know that, uh, that we were told don't join in unless asked. But unfortunately, we don't always obey, you know, our management. <laughs> so. We started paying attention a little bit because we knew that our help was probably going to be needed, and we knew there was a lot of good people out there that could help out. So, who at Langley said, "You know what? Could you guys help these guys at JSC?" Who was the guy that went to you? Was it Del Freeman? You know, uh, darn Charlie, there's holes. There's holes in my memory on exactly how we we did get involved. Like I say, I started talking on these telecoms with with Throckmorton. He was down at Marshall, so. So I sort of backed my way in, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I actually called up Del Freeman. I'm going to interview Del Freeman. I'm going to have he's going to be on the podcast with us. But I actually called Del Freeman. I said, you know what? We need Ed Fasanella and the team at the landing landing loads to uh, work with the guys at at Marshall. And um, and and Del was also the same way. I mean, Del told me exactly they weren't going to jump in unless. They were specifically asked by JSC. JSC didn't want me to ask anyone, but I went ahead and asked Dell because I knew Dell. <laughs> right. Well, I'm glad you did. <laughs> we appreciate your help because uh, we put together a great team and uh, we had we had a lot of camaraderie. It was the most exciting time of my career, and I think I wrote more papers and did more work uh, during that than any other you project know I worked on. The other thing, the other thing you told me, which a lot of the researchers that I have talked to, because I, I'm, I'm going to be writing a book about a research culture, right? And one of the things that's very interesting that some of the other researchers have said is, why? Do, when I asked them, why do you get into this? Because they love to solve problems. And I know when I was first talking to you about coming on the show, you said the same thing. You love to solve problems. Well, that's my mantra. 
I, I mean, if there's if a problem out there, I'm like a pit bull. I get on it and I try to find everything else, everything else I can about it and work on it. And, and this problem with the foam, I mean, I knew about, you know, inertial effects and, and uh, high velocity. You Just take a hurricane. I mean, there's straws that have been poked right into a fence post. And you say, how can that happen? Well, that's because the, the straw doesn't have time to bend, so it goes right in. And so with, with inertial effects and high velocities, all kind of crazy stuff can happen, but you can, you can understand it and you can predict it. And, uh, but you have to do a lot of testing and you have to test your tests and you have to know what's what, and you have to know what you know and what you don't know, and you have to quantify everything. You have to, it's like climate change, it has to be quantified and it's very difficult. In that case, they use a type of finite element also, but it's, I mean, you're trying to model the whole earth. All we were trying to model is just a, a leading edge and a foam and also other debris like ice and composite and, material. And we talk, we talk about, I, I talk about a research culture, research environment. I mean, this is how we grew up. That's how we do business. You go out, you try things, you fail, you learn and, and you progress. And so when we put together the team, we had people from Langley. We had people from Glenn, Matt Mellis and, and his team, Kelly Carney and, and, and the folks out at Glenn Research Center. Uh, Dave Throckmorton was, uh, I think he was a deputy direct, director out there at Marshall, uh, at Michoud. Yeah. No, oh, Stennis, Stennis, yeah. excuse me, at Stennis. And we put together a team of people to present to the program office, the shuttle program office at, at Johnson Space Center, what we could actually do with, with, with a team of people that did research in this area, physics-based approach. It took this team of teams, walk us through how you guys work together, all the different expertise that you had to bring to the table and the environment that your team was able to work together and do these amazing things in a pretty short period of time. Well, it was a, it was a, it was a great effort and there was a lot to learn. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the various debris that could, we actually started out with foam, of course, and tried to, figure out how to model that. And at Langley, we had a we had drop towers and uh, we could get a fairly high velocity with a bungee assisted drop drop towers to get to uh, actually crush the foam very rapidly, dynamically, and look at the forces that are generated. Uh, we, we took that, we even looked at the foam at, at low temperatures and so forth and warmer temperatures, low temperatures, uh, we, we, we took blocks of foam and did that uh, within our drop tower. That was part of the work. It, we also, there was the team up at Glenn Research Center, Matt Mellis, Kelly Carney, Pereira, and their group. And they, of course, they've been working ballistics for years. And so they shot foam. And of course, they have all the information on that. But we worked together. We had telecons. Uh, and that was before Zoom. We had uh, telecons. I guess there were phones, <laughs> phone cons, phone talks. Uh, and uh, we, we would discuss what we were doing. And also John Gabriz was very instrumental in our group. There were sort of, at the very beginning, there were sort of a large number of people that were playing, saying they could do this modeling and could help. Everybody wanted to help. Let's face it, it was a national tragedy and everybody wanted to help. And, but the uh, people that Johnson did pick a certain number of team players to be the core and Langley, Glenn, uh, uh, Houston, and, uh, Langley, Glenn, Houston, 
Boeing. And Boeing helicopter where John Gabers worked. Yeah. And I remember when they were setting up to do this full-scale test, and I saw that they weren't going to instrument this full-scale wing leading edge. Uh, they weren't going to do any analysis. They were going to put a minimal amount of strain gauges on it. And the fellow that helped me put the brakes on was a fellow that was a vice president at uh, Lockheed at the time that was observing the cave. And I told his name is John Near. And I told him, you know, we could do a lot better than this. And I think that's how we actually got the attention and got in front of the program office. And do you remember when you guys were presenting some initial results? I remember we they we even brought in Sandia Labs who had like an orders of magnitude, much more refined model than yours, looking at hundreds of parallel processes that they used to do the, the predictions for the bunker busters. And when they compared their analysis with your analysis, they realized that, hey, you guys, you guys, it, it, it correlated very well. Well, yes, uh, Sandia did get involved and they did have a lot more resources than we did. And sometimes, you know, it just takes the right hammer to crack the nut. You don't always need a sledgehammer. So um, we, we were, we had a lot of, we just came up with a very good model because we had a lot of test data to put into it. And we had ballistics people, we had impact people, and uh, we had the various uh, centers, NASA centers. And we, 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 know, we all got together. We talked to the Sandia people. We saw what they were doing. Uh, we saw what the uh, we saw what the various people were doing, and and uh, we, we were just very happy and a very very good group and a very hardworking group. And I think sometimes it's the uh, tortoise and the hare, maybe the tortoise wins. <laughs> That's and you know, you talk about the different expertise. You know, you had to rely on material scientists like the folks at at Glenn that were developing these um, failure theories for the foam failure theories for when the lamina and the fibers would fail in the RCC composite material. And as you're running these very small tests, that's the process that I like to call failing smart, fast, small, cheap, early and often. You're rapidly assimilating this data, you're validating your models, you're looking what's happening. Exactly, Charlie. Uh, we had little samples of RCC and we did impact tests on those and we would uh, we would take the little uh, bending models, for example, doing a th simple three-point uh, three bend with a little small samples, like one inch by six inches long. And we would study the inertial effects and the velocity effects and uh, there in our lab. So we had, a, we had the lab set up and we had a very good experimentalist, Satiris Kellis, who at the time was a contract employee, but he later joined, uh, joined as a civil servant. And he's done an awful lot of very good uh, work for uh, uh, Mars sample return and so forth. I actually did, did some work for the Mars sample return too. But anyway, uh, we had a really good laboratory set up and we did a lot of testing. So we learned a lot about the materials. We even studied uh, some of the ablative materials that are on the solid rocket booster. And we did testing on impact testing on those. So in addition to the really high velocity that was done at Glenn, we did sort of intermediate velocity work and we could extrapolate and pick up strain rate effects and so forth on the Lower that, end. That's right. And the other folks that we had, you had on that team was Southern Research Institute, John John Koenig. Yes, that's correct. John Koenig uh, uh, would do the, he would actually 
do the testing of the materials and gave us a lot of good information there. We used his information to start. It was static testing, but it was a, a failure, but it was good information. That, that gave us an idea of what the strains, when it was gonna break, and we had strain-based models for failure. And uh, yeah, John Koenig was very important. And, and so that's the other thing. You not only did the foam, you also did a blade of, and you also did ice. Yes, we did ice. That was very interesting. Uh, uh, we actually, Matt Mellis was able to find the company in Canada that they would make uh, <laughs> cylinders of ice. <laughs> and they would, Special ice flown in from Canada. Beautiful stuff. And, they, and he shot it in up, up there at Glen, and we, we, we got boxes of it, and we stuck it in our, <laughs> excuse me, our, our uh, bungee-assisted drop tower, and we, we got, you know, we got some, a lot of good information on that stuff, and, lower and, velocities. And, and the other thing that, <clears throat> that your team did that you brought in, you talk about you do work in experiments and, and also analysis, and the experiment experimentalists are very important, was the work that Glenn Research Center was doing in full field observation of the impact test and actually measuring using photogrammetry the deformations, and then, then you could calculate the strains and over the entire object so that now you can compare it with your analysis, which was phenomenal. Exactly. That data was beautiful. Those those uh, color charts of the strain, the, the deformations that they measured with up there, Glenn, uh, they had, they had uh, square panels that they would shoot and they would send us the information. Then we would start making the models and we had models that would predict that right on all the way up to failure, the deflection, the strains, the failure. So that's, we used all that kind of stuff to perfect our big models. So you had to have little models, component models and large models. So it, we had that yep. whole thing. You've got to start small. It was a building, it was a building block approach. But tell me something, when you first learned, when did you first learn that the folks that made the call up to space and said, you don't, you don't know, not to space, but to the program office and said, you don't have to worry about it. It's not going to be a problem. They use this crater analysis. And when you looked at that equation that they used in the crater model and what it was based on, which was about 50 data points of foam that was about three inches cubed, and the actual piece of foam that hit the vehicle was 1290 cubic inches what were your thoughts when well, well well i mean you know that's uh just that's just a small semi-empirical almost like a spreadsheet model that they came up with and i guess uh yeah i guess that you know it unfortunately was inadequate so what can i say it was just a simple model that really uh you know, I looked at it, but I, you know, then I just got it. I know he's just such a such a nice guy. I mean, I I don't I don't believe if I was a sophomore in 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 college, I would have believed that uh, that someone would use that and extrapolate four hundred times <laughs> to predict a life and death situation, and then be so so confident that they knew what they were doing, but. But but they did, and 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 we and we lost the crew, and we learned so much more because of people like you, and um, and, and I, I just think the story and and how your team operated is an exercise 
on what I would consider uh, what every high-performing team, how they should operate. I mean, you had this geographically dispersed team. You communicated. You set up a website. Uh, you had technical interchange meetings. You had teleconferences. And you were transparently transferring this information and analyzing this information and sharing it and, and collaborating as a, a really great team. Yeah, we had a great team and we visited each other. We went to each each person's location. We were on the phone all the time. Like I think it was before Zoom and before a lot of the a lot of the collaboration type programs that came along. Also I want to mention the some of the people at Langley that were on the team because they it was a team effort. Uh, there was Karen Lyle who did a lot a lot of the modeling, a modeling expert, Karen Jackson, Lisa Jones, Richard Boydnott, Satiris Kellis. And we had a fantastic uh, 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 guide with nuts and bolts, a very good technician, Nelson Seabolt, uh, who's still working at Langley at 70, 70, 70 um, years old. Wow. Fantastic worker. But yes, it was a, it was a good collaboration. Uh, we worked off of each other. We wrote papers. We uh, we we started. We didn't extrapolate. We you just can't do that. You can't you can't extrapolate very. You might extrapolate a hair, but you can't extrapolate orders of magnitude. No, no. And you know, I was working for Ralph Rowland and NASA Engineering and Safety Center, which uh, helped sponsor a lot of this effort. And um, back in the day, you know, the the team that missed the call and, and said we the. STS 107 was safe to come back and re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. The leading edge structural subsystem problem resolution team, LESSPRT, was the name of that team. And after your team did such great work, I wrote up a little paper and I sent it to Ralph and I said, you know what, we need to emphasize what a real, what I call the super problem resolution team, how it's supposed to work. And yours was a model that I think resonated with Ralph and the rest of the people high up in the NESC that they could use this as an example of what could be done if we linked real researchers with a lot of really good engineers and technicians. It could be geographically dispersed and and how the magic can happen and you know tell us about the leadership because you know this was a pretty much flat network that you guys worked in with no real directive kind of leader so to speak i think you had glenn miller that was kind of your program manager but you really tell us about it tell us how it all worked out because you each had different areas of expertise. Yes. Well, let me say also that the NESC was a great idea, Charlie. And I did a lot of work after the shuttle for the NESC and, uh, and you know, the landing of, of how to land the uh, next generation um, missions. But anyway, uh, back to the leadership uh, management. Uh, Glenn Miller, I think he was a pro in the program office there at Houston. He sort of was got it started he came to visit us at our facility and we had all the people that wanted to get interested into this doing this work there it was sandy uh, and uh, marshall and glenn and i think glenn was there we had a lot of people there but uh we i also need to mention that he turned it over to a couple of guys uh, that were contractors uh, at houston they were boeing people darwin moon and mike dunham uh, Darwin Moon and Mike Dunham did do a good job. It was later into the 
into the program that they came along, but they, Mike Dunham was a very good technical man and Darwin Moon was a pretty good manager. So we did have help from them as far as uh, what to do and how to, they, they, they put out goals for us to do and reports to write and that kind of thing. Then we got the chartist and all that kind of stuff in the-, in the you, know, you know something, Darwin Moon was actually, I, I, I know Darwin and I was working with him a little bit. I believe he was the Boeing employee that was actually running the creative program back, back in the day. Really? He didn't admit that to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he was one of the guys that made some of the first calculations. You know, that program was developed by Boeing out on the West Coast. Yeah. And so they, I guess they certified people that were working at Johnson that could use that code. But it really was not designed to be used the way it was used. And Darwin knew that. Darwin knew that. I just don't think upper management realized that. Uh, exactly. And like the NESC is, a, like I say, a great idea where you get management that can talk to experts. But, you know, ex you, you can't believe all experts either. So you got to listen to everybody. And I think that was as a consequence of the Columbia accident. NASA management wised up and decided, hey, we need to listen to everybody in the room. So that was one of the mantras. Listen to everybody. Let everybody give their opinion. Because the guy in the back that's a junior engineer, it could be that he knows he happens to know something the expert doesn't and, know. And you know, that's one of that's one of the attributes of a research culture. Back at Langley, when you read the SPs by the historians, it was that deference for the person with the knowledge. No matter what the hierarchical status of that person was, it could be the most junior person. If they had the knowledge, people listened to them. The other thing was a psychologically safe environment where you could argue, you could discuss. And I know that you experienced this with your team because there was an alternate team from Langley that that were analyzing the impact differently. And you guys used to get into some nice, uh, tense discussions. Well, that, that, the other team was actually there at, uh, at, at Houston that were modeling. Uh, they were they had a group that was modeling it. Uh, it was and uh yeah we got into some discussions we had we it sort of got nasty at a few times i hate i hated that because uh uh but you know sometimes you you, you do you know you know i can't remember who that would be Houston, because you know i was director of engineering there for a little bit and um we had folks that had, did had done hyper velocity impact but we had no one in Houston that actually did ballistic impact well, you'll have to ask Darwin Moon or uh, the name. I forgot the name of the fellow. He was a contract employee. Uh, he wasn't a civil servant, but he had his own. He had his own code and his own method of doing things. And we we were concerned about he was getting whether he was well what he was doing. I I, I guess, but uh, we I don't even want but to get into that. <laughs> whatever he was doing. Let's just make sure the audience realize when they actually ran that full-scale impact test with that very large, almost two-pound piece of foam traveling at 545 miles an hour, and it struck that full-scale wing-leading edge, you guys predicted beforehand it would see a large pizza box size hole, about 14 inches square, and lo and behold, that's what happened. Yeah, we did that, Charlie, but that actually wasn't near as good. 
SR test that actually just predicted a crack or a small hole. That was catastrophic damage. And I think, uh, you know. The and you were able to predict that? Yeah, we were able to predict the, the little cracks and the, you know, the, the leading edge damage that was small that could lead to a big problem. So that, that's right. That's right. And for the audience to realize the leading edge is made out of carbon carbon, which is totally combustible. You know, it, it oxidizes readily, but it has a very thin silicon carbide coating, right? Like 40 mils thick, very thin, very brittle. All you have to do is chip about a thumbnail sized piece of coating and you will burn the hole, the hole will grow and the vehicle will be destroyed on entry. And what Ed is talking about is we had to, you had to determine what that minimal size damage was. Yes, the acceptable damage. And the, we had the model, the silicon carbide layers and the uh, RCC layers underneath. So we had a multi-layer program and we looked at the uh, strains and the so forth in each layer. Well, so we could sort of predict whether it was going to chip off the silicon carbide and what was going to happen. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it was we we then we started looking at ice and other materials. So we 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 spent years working on on various types of debris and things that could happen uh, in the model. I don't I don't know if you remember this, Ed, but not only did we you know, the PAL ramp came off when we launched and it went under our wing leading edge. We almost got hit with a much larger size piece of foam on our launch, but we also hit a buzzard on launch. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, the, we, I, yeah, the buzzard, I'll never forget that. <laughs> we hit a buzzard right at the tippy okay, top well, of the external it. tank. We had, that, we had to actually go up and model that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> Yeah, we modeled the buzzard impact too. <laughs> the, the, yeah, know. it would have been it would have been catastrophic if it would have tumbled on the other side of the tank and hit the orbiter. Oh my gosh, you were lucky, weren't you, Charlie? <laughs> I'm I, I'm still very lucky. Amen. <laughs> oh boy, Ed, you know you had such an amazing amazing career, and I always remember you being this positive, happy-go-lucky, intense. There was never anything you wouldn't do. You always loved to do the work you did. And tell us a little bit as, as we close today, because we're both retired, Ed, what it was like in the early years working as a researcher. And then did you notice any changes before you retired in NASA? Well, working at NASA, just take a popular, is a popular place to work. You just take a poll, you'll find that all the government facilities probably, I mean, NASA usually comes out number one. And the engineers that work there, they've always loved working there and uh, are dedicated and very hardworking people. Uh, I, I guess back in the old days, uh, the, you know, things have changed over the years. There's no doubt about it. But I think you got the, you've got the same thread of the type of people that go engineering there. They're analytical type people, math oriented, science oriented, the engineers are. Uh, and, and they're still, you know, that's still, they're still putting them out today that are very good. Look at the people working for SpaceX now. I mean, I don't know where they got all those people, but they must've picked up some really good ones because when we studied, I did a lot of work studying a uh, land impact landing, you know, for the Orion program and, and, uh, and so did uh, other people using rockets and so forth. But then uh, I couldn't believe, we said, oh, well, it looks like we better stick with the water, but it looks like Musk 
came, came along and landed on a barge. I said, oh my God. And so uh, I think things changed a lot as far as the technology to allow that. But uh, that was a great feat there. But yeah, things change, but they're still the same. I think the same type of people and the, it requires the same dedication, the hard work. And you, when people's lives are at stake, you really want to do the best, whether it's an automobile crash for safety or whether it's a shuttle or whether it's Orion or whatever it is, uh, or building bridges. No matter what you're doing in engineering, people's lives are at risk and you want to do the best job you can because you know it. Well, you know, Ed, I, I talked to some of the folks that, you know, when I flew in space, um, I don't know if you could see it, but my crew notebook, I had the Friends of Charlie network, the names and their telephone numbers and emails. And if we would have had an impact, Ed, I would have called you up just like I called up Tom Horvath for the gap filler problem. If we would have had an impact and there was no damage detectable, I would have called you up just to make sure. Well, there was a lot of good work done at various centers, including at Langley on damage damage or repair on orbit and so forth. Uh, and uh, yeah, yep. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame that the Columbia accident ever happened. Uh, and I, I don't want to talk about, you know, mistakes that were made probably, but anyway, I think we NASA learned a lot and uh, we have to just go forward from there. Well, buddy, I'm, I'm so happy you took the time to, to tell your story. There's so much more to it. Uh, if people want to get access to anything, do you have a website that they could go to or well, they could uh, they could ask me and I will send I will can, get whatever why, why, they if, Yeah, have them ask you, Charlie, and you can you can contact me. I, I, uh, <clears throat> I don't have a, a, a technical website or anything like that. I, I, I mainly have a, a, since I retired. I worked for the NIA a while, but I, I worked until my 70s, and then I retired, and I, I mainly piddle with uh, things now, and I do some editing and on timepieces and horology and that kind of thing. So, But yeah, if, you, if anybody has any questions, I'd be glad to answer it. You just, you just send it on to me, and I'll be glad to contact them. Will do, Ed. Thank you. Thank you so much. for asking me. And, uh, you know, I never turned you down, Charlie, so... <laughs> I know, I know. And I just want to thank you for taking the time and and thank you very much. Enjoy, enjoy retirement. It was great talking with you. Same Take care. Here, Charlie. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast with Charlie Camarda, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.